Welcome to this sermon from Silver Lake Baptist Church. Our mission is to celebrate the greatness of God with all we are for the joy, hope, and renewal of our community. We are so glad you have chosen to listen to our message. We pray you will be blessed by your time with us today. Well, good morning. Good morning. It's so good to be with you this morning. I've been looking forward to coming back. I'm a, I'm a kind of a, a country church boy, you know, I was raised in the country and um, pioneered a couple country churches, so this feels like a country church, you know, and I, I just love being here. Just give me one moment here. Lubricate, lubricate the uh, <coughs> throat a little bit. Well, let's pray and uh, ask God to apply His Word to our hearts and lives. Father, in Jesus' name. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your son who's pioneered the way for us, as the book of Hebrews teaches. The author and the finisher of our faith, the captain of our salvation, who has blazed the trail through sin, suffering, and triumph. Lord, speak to our hearts today. And may the word that is spoken today that's from you, Lord, uh, may it Uh, be engrafted in our hearts. May it grow and bring forth fruit. Uh, May you use it to prepare us for whatever life may bring so that we may honor you in all that we do and say. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Why God? And where is God, especially when it hurts? Why God? Where is God, especially when I need him the most, right? Right? You ever been in that place? Sure, most of us have. If we haven't, uh, chances are life will bring you some of those uh, curveballs, and you'll wonder, where did that come from? Uh, there's two things. As After 40 years in ministry and uh, 48 years of walking with Jesus and 68 years of living on this earth, uh, after all that time, there's certain things in these later years that I reflect on quite a bit especially from the perspective of being a pastor and uh, called by the Lord to, to, to pastor and preach and teach his word and love his people, uh, is one of the major concerns that's looming in the last 10, 20 years is how the church is losing its witness to the world, how, we're, uh, how the world is becoming more antagonistic towards the church and how we are losing, not necessarily you, but generically speaking, how the church seems to be losing its salt and witness and life in our culture. But that's a sermon for another day, so that's, the, that's one of the things. The second thing is um, my concern that Christians are really prepared for life, especially when life throws us those curveballs, when we get that, that, uh, that uh, hit in the chops we didn't see coming when we go through a season of suffering uh, and we begin to wonder and question, God, where are you? What's going on? Is it something I've done, Lord? We have all those normal sort of questions, right? That are, they're, and it's okay to have those questions. In fact, when I went through the midnight of my soul some 20-some years ago, 25 years ago, uh, went through an extended season of suffering, I even got mad at God. I, I yelled at him. You, you know what? God's got big shoulders. He's our dad, right? He's the ultimate father. 
And he can take all of that and just sit back and walk with us through it. And uh, he doesn't uh, hold it against us because um, he knows our frame. He knows what we're made of. Now, so that, the second primary concern, again, is my concern that Christians are really prepared for suffering and even persecution. Because as we know, today's culture is becoming increasingly antagonistic towards the gospel. And for those churches and individuals who decide to stand, and having done all the stand, as the scripture says, upon orthodoxy, upon the basic essentials of the Christian faith, it's not that we're radical, it's that the world and the culture is moving so far that we stand out, right? And uh, we, be, we, in their eyes, become the radicals. When all we've really done is just say, no, I'm, I'm standing right here. I'm staying right here. I'm, I'm uh, as uh, Watchman Nee wrote, uh, sit, walk, stand. That I'm, I'm sitting here in the presence of God. I'm going to stand with him. Uh, and I'm going to walk with him. So just by virtue of just doing that, right? Uh, we see uh, in the news and social media how increasingly Christians are experiencing persecution and suffering. In our, in our country, in our culture, it's perhaps a bit more subtle, but not so much anymore if you engage it all in the media or, or social media. But it's nothing compared to what the church has experienced in history as far as suffering. And nothing compared to what our brothers and sisters in communist countries and Muslim countries uh, are experiencing extraordinary suffering, even martyrdom, right? So while we're, we're feeling it here in the United States, we've pretty much lived in a bubble for the last 100, 200 years. We really have. We've lived in a safe bubble. But historically, the church has been a church that understands suffering. Biblically, as we dive into the scriptures, both from a historical perspective through the Old Testament and through the New Testament, and then through church history, we have definitely, as Western Christians, especially in the United States, we've lived in a bubble. And so when a little bit of persecution comes, we, we kind of like, wow, uh, that's more, that, that shouldn't be happening. Well, actually, I think as we sit, walk, and stand with Jesus, it's going to increasingly happen as the culture shifts and we stand. So I encourage you to stand. And that's what this message is a bit about, it's, uh, and largely about, is how do we stand in the midst of whether it's suffering that comes from persecution or suffering that comes from illness or an accident, financial crisis, emotional crisis, whatever it might be. So it's interesting, too, as we well know, uh, the scripture in 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, it reads, Indeed, all who desire to live godly lives, so people who are standing, sit, walk, stand with Jesus, uh, all those who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Whoops. You know, uh, we didn't see that coming, did we? And in fact, it's Peter that says in 1 Peter 4, don't be surprised at the fiery trial that has come upon you. But we, we are surprised, right? I mean, when tragedy strikes, it's, it's stunning sometimes. It's a surprise. But Peter said, don't be surprised. Why? Because it's normative that throughout church history, throughout biblical history, and 80, 60% of the world, uh, our brothers and sisters are being severely persecuted, experiencing extraordinary suffering. But we should still prepare ourselves for that. So this message, while it might start out a bit somber, uh, you know, we're talking about suffering. It's not like be happy and walk with Jesus kind of sermon, right? 
Uh, but what I, I trust will happen as we conclude today is that you will get some key principles on how to flourish when you're in that place of suffering or persecution. How we flourish in that place. Because clearly, the saints of the Old Testament and New Testament, after they went through an initial shock and thought it was, uh, it was a surprise, right? But they, we see that they flourished in spite of it. In fact, sometimes because of suffering, we flourish even more. We understand that as, again, the analogy of a fruit tree, when we're pruned, it, it doesn't feel good at first. The tree kind of goes into shock, doesn't it? But what is the long-term result? Greater fruitfulness, right? Yeah, greater, and fruits of the Spirit, if we want to apply that to our own lives. So suffering has, suffering has been normative throughout the church history, so we shouldn't be surprised when it comes to us. So just be ready for that. If and when it happens, and chances are, statistically, it's going to happen. Um, I've been through two or three seasons, but one's a very severe season of suffering in my life. So I'm, I'm not going to be surprised if I get another one. Uh, just because of experience, because of what the Word of God teaches. Now, the book of Hebrews is kind of the consummate book on the theology of suffering. By the way, how many of you have really looked forward to studying the theology of suffering? <laughs> no, and there's no hands. Why are there no hands? See, it's so important that we're prepared for it, right? And the book of Hebrews prepares us for that. Um, I had the joy for 10 years of working with a lady by the name of Johnny Erickson Tata. Some of you, I think, know her. A beloved saint of the Lord and a woman who truly understands suffering. Quadriplegic most of her life. She's now 69. She's a year older than me. Uh, she had her accident when she became a quadriplegic, I think, when she was 18 or 19. So she's been at this suffering a long time. And she has a Bible that she kind of a commentary she's written on, this, on the sidebars of, a, of the NIV called the Encouragement Bible. And in the introductions to Hebrews, she wrote this. When the pressure's on, when the heat rises, when the pain escalates, when hard times descend like a crushing weight, there will always be a temptation to leave the path of faith. And some do just that. Torn by hardship, battered by circumstances, they become bitter or discouraged. They retreat into self-pity. They question the goodness of God. They cut themselves off from contact with other believers. They seek comfort or help or pleasure from sources other than Jesus Christ. The Bible anticipates this temptation and meets it head on in the book of Hebrews. So, we have up, uh, if we could can have that first slide up, I'd appreciate it. Thank you. Yes, thank you. The reason why I'm looking so carefully at those slides is I changed up the slide order, and I, um, I, I do that to confuse people. So, and we read in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, the, which is called the, the chapter is called the Hall of Faith, where we, you're probably familiar with that. All the people through biblical history and extra-biblical, refers to extra-biblical, outside the Bible story. People who endured through suffering. In Hebrews 11, uh, verse 13, all these people, and that includes Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Rahab and Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah, all of these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive 
Yes, they did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. So they experienced suffering, they, but they saw the promises, but they didn't fully receive all the promises. Um, I think we've been there, right? Well, we've seen the promises, we've prayed for the promises, and sometimes we haven't received them yet, right? It might be a physical healing, it might be a financial need. Then we go on and read in Hebrews 11, beginning at verse 32. That's PowerPoint number nine, or number two on my handwritten note there to you, to the audiovisual person. Thank you. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises. Now, some folks... We obtained the promises. Some folks, as a previous passage, they saw the promises from afar off. They still died in faith, but they didn't. Abraham didn't see all the promise that was promised him, that, his, uh, that he would be the father of many nations. Didn't happen in his lifetime, did it? Right? But here it says, some obtained the promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. So there were miracles then, and there are miracles today. That's why we continue to pray, right? So sometimes we receive the promises in this life, and sometimes it won't be until the next shore that we fully realize them. But it, Scripture says they all died in faith. Because there's this teaching out there that if somehow you're not healed or you don't get your financial blessing or that you're, you're not walking in faith. And that's just simply false. That's simply false. The scripture doesn't teach that. Teach, the scripture teaches to believe for miracles, sure, and to pray. What? And we should continue to pray. But not everyone obtained the promises, however some did. Then we go on in verse uh, in, in Hebrews 11. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they may obtain a better resurrection. Hmm. That's interesting, isn't it? They, that they might obtain... So there's some resurrections that are better than other resurrections. Now, if you study the Scriptures, you realize that God does have a reward system. Now, we're all saved by grace through faith and not of works. We got that down, okay? So let's, we got that, all right? We're Baptists. We got it, all right? We're all saved by grace through faith. But uh, the Bible also teaches us that God has a system of rewards. Now, to me, the real, when I look at heroes of faith in this life, there are people like the single mom who's faithful to raise her, her children well. That mom with a kid with the disabilities or a husband who maybe has Alzheimer's who daily labors. Now, those are the heroes of faith in my book. And I think in God's book, too. I think God looks at everything in our life when he judges our life and passes out his rewards. We all made it to heaven, got that. But when the rewards come, there are certain people that have a better resurrection. That's what it says there. I'm just saying what it said, okay? So don't get mad at me. Some, some folks get a better resurrection than other folks, Okay? 
Because these folks not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. They didn't give in. They didn't yield. They didn't say, I'll renounce my faith. They, they just would not give in. Still others had trial of mockings and scourging, yes, and of change and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two, were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world, this world is not worthy. Really. So they're really most worthy for the next world, the next reality that we have in Christ, right? That next shore. So when I'm around that mom who's been raising that child with disabilities, working full-time, doing every, every waking hour, as you think about a child with severe autism. Uh, you know, when I look at that, I just, I have nothing but deep admiration in my heart. Because we often think, again, it's kind of like, well, Billy Graham, he's got the big star, right? Well, maybe not. Maybe there's other, there's bigger stars. Maybe there are. Uh, Maybe like Job, right? Who went through extraordinary suffering. Maybe so. But we do know the scripture says there's a better resurrection for some. And that they're not worthy of this world. That God is preparing them to shine in the next world. Right? Yeah. Of whom the world was not worthy, they wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these having obtained a good testimony... Because they suffered, and they suffered by faith in Christ. They did not buckle. They may have been, they may have been frayed around the edges like I did when I went through the midnight of my soul. I'm telling you, I was, I was not in a good place. But somehow God gave me the ability to hold on. And it was his ability, not mine. It's his ability, not mine. Apart from him, we can do no thing. As you get older in the Lord and you walk in the Lord, you realize that more and more. Apart from Him, even when things are going great, apart from Him, we can do nothing. It's all grace, all mercy, all His power. So they obtained a good testimony through their faith, but they did not receive the promise in the here and now. Wow. There's my heroes. There's the hall of faith, the heroes of the hall of faith. Those are the people that I look to, that I want to to learn from, right? And we can, by the way. There's ways we can do that, like maybe setting up a ministry to visit your local long-term care facility once a week and just go in and be with people. Just love them. Yeah. Maybe that's it. It's not difficult. So, um, and then that goes on to say in verse 40, God having provided something better for us that they should not be made up perfect apart from us. What that means is all, all these heroes of faith, uh, as well as they are rewarded, we received something even better. And what was that? Well, if you study the context in the book, you learn that it's, we have the assurance of Jesus. We have the assurance of salvation. In the Old Testament, they didn't have that. In the Old Covenant, they weren't for sure, right? But we have this confidence the Bible talks about. This internal confidence when we're born again in Christ Jesus that enables us to know in whom we have believed, right? Epigenosis is a Greek word too. Experientially know Jesus Christ. Wow, what a treasure we have. And so all the more should we be able to 
be faithful even in a time of great pain and suffering, right? Yeah, okay. So major takeaways from the book of Hebrews and Hebrews 11, God is in control even when life seems out of control. God is in control even when things seem out of control. God is present with you in your suffering even though you may not feel him. Why is that? Because you're feeling pain. Emotional, physical, sometimes both, you're feeling pain. But that doesn't negate that he's not right there with you as he was with these saints that we just read about in Hebrews 11. Some people are delivered in this life from their suffering and some not until the next life. That's the reality. That's what the scripture teaches. Those who endured long-term suffering and persecution died in faith just as much as those who received the promises on this side. Perhaps even more so because the Bible says they received a better resurrection. The difference between those who suffered in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and those who suffered in the New Testament today is Jesus. We have the great leg up on suffering. We got Jesus. You know in whom you have believed. You know him. He knows you. Nothing can take that away from you, even pain and suffering. In his book, Fresh Power, Jim Cimbala tells a story of a Swedish missionary couple, David and Sve Flood, who in 1921, with their two-year-old son, went to Africa to serve in what was then called the Belgian Congo. They teamed up with another couple named Ericsson and set out from the main mission station to take the gospel to a remote area. It was a huge step of faith for them, and things did not go well. The local chief would not even allow them to enter his village for fear of alienating their gods. The two couples went a short distance and built crude mud huts. They prayed earnestly for a spiritual breakthrough, but nothing happened. The only contact they were allowed to have with the villagers was with a young boy who was allowed to sell them chickens and eggs once a week. Sfei Flood decided that if this boy were the only African she could talk to, she would try to lead him to Jesus. And she succeeded. They had no other encouragement, no other contacts, no other converts. They were continually stricken with malaria, one time after the other, time after time. Discouraged, the Ericsons finally went back to the main mission station. The floods remained. Then Faye became pregnant. The chief still wouldn't allow them to come into his village, but he did at least soften enough to allow the local midwife to help her. A little girl was born. Her name was Aina. The birth of the baby was exhausting, and Sfei was already seriously weakened from the bouts of malaria. She lived only 17 days after the birth of the baby. It was too much for David Flood. Something snapped. He dug a crude grave, buried his 27-year-old wife, and took their two children to the mission station. He told the Ericsons that he wanted them to raise his baby daughter. He said, I'm going back to Sweden. I've lost my wife, and I obviously can't take care of this baby. God has ruined my life. David Flood turned his back on his calling. He turned his back on God and went back to Sweden dumbfounded, bewildered, confused, and wondering where in creation is God and what is he doing, if anything. 
And we'll come back to the story in just a few minutes. So during times of great suffering, it's normal, as Mr. Flood did here, to question, to ask questions. And the rawness of suffering, it's okay to ask those questions. But it's what we do with those questions that will determine our destiny, right? So we learn from the scriptures that God is sovereign. In Hebrews chapter 1, 1 through 3, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, it reads, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory in this express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So this text teaches us that God is sovereign. Jesus is sovereign. Everything holds together by him. Everything created is by him, right? And we see also at his death and resurrection, sin was destroyed. All pain, suffering, and evil was vanquished. But not yet. Legally, Jesus purchased all of that for us. Forgiveness of sin, relief from all suffering and pain, healing, miracles. He died for all that. And those things do happen. But sometimes they don't in this life, right? We have to wait for the next shore. So legally, the, the victory was won at the cross and the resurrection. But experientially, it's to be played out through history through whom? The church, you and me. God has decided, since it's through man that pain came and suffering through the fall, it's through man that redemption will also, mankind will also be part of God's story of redemption. You and I are part of the soldiers in the story, the medical personnel in the story of redemption. Because we read in Hebrews 2, 8 through 10, Hebrews 2, 8 through 10, you have put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But, but now we do not yet see all things put under him. What are you saying? All things are put under him, but yet not all things are not put under him. What's going on here? Well, again, at the cross, legally, it was, it was, the right was purchased. If you can use the analogy of Second World War, when Normandy occurred, Germany was done. They were done. But guess what? Soldiers, airmen, our armies had to carry out that mandate. That legal, legally it was done. I mean, it was done. But there was still much to be done that God had to use Eisenhower and our armies to make that happen, right? But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than than the angels, for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom all things, whom, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. So, he purchased it all. He's sovereign. And he's our captain in this great crusade, as uh, Eisenhower called it, when they landed in Normandy, this great crusade that we're in, 
to bring the gospel to the world, to see the kingdom realized in our neighborhoods and families, our communities. That's done through us as well. God has chosen you and I to carry that out. So God has permitted evil because of man's choice, and certainly evil comes from the devil himself, right? We know that we have an adversary, the devil, who's stalking around, looking for opportunity, right? I have friends who have uh, greatly suffered. I mentioned Johnny Erickson Tata, but many others. I've, I've been involved in disability ministry for many years, wrote a book on disability ministry called uh, Contagious Love, so you can flourish in suffering. Can, there is contagious love and suffering. And in many cases, their suffering was not due to their sin, which is typically not the reason why we suffer. God does discipline us. I know that discipline. I got that. I read the word. The Holy Spirit hammers me too. Okay, so I got that. But when it comes to suffering, primarily it's not, it doesn't come from God. It comes from the designs of the enemy or the fact that we live in a world, a sin-filled world, where mankind has, for example, spewed toxic chemicals into the environment out of basic greed and materialism into the food chain. And guess what? Cancer happens. People get sick. Nobody's individual fault, but we live in this sin-pocked world. So what are we to do? Well, my, my encouragement is that, as I mentioned earlier, one of the best things we can do is just be with people who suffer. Be available. Don't preach at them. Don't try to give them all the right theological answers or right theological directions. For the most part, what we need most from people is just their presence. When I went to the midnight of my soul, it was a friend that would just walk with me on the beach. Didn't say anything. Sometimes he, and he would just let me cry. And I would cry. Like a baby. Uh, but he was there. He was present. Emmanuel, God with us. The ministry of presence is highly underrated. It's highly underrated. Go be present with people Find where people suffer and go be present with them. Like at the Everett Gospel Mission, right? Yeah. The Bible says if one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. That means we're sharing in that. We're walking in that together. So, Johnny also wrote this booklet called Why. And in that booklet, she writes about the aftermath of, of terrible tragedies. Quote, Why? Many wondered about the goodness of God and the problem of so much evil and suffering. Their questions reflect ours as we face our own personal crisis. We can't live with the answers like God has nothing to do with terrible tragedies or God can't control evil men and their actions. We cannot be Stoics either, simply resigning ourselves to a new definition for the normal life while we plod one weary foot in front of the other. People are struggling. Like a friend of mine who was going blind recently said, I don't want to be a saint. I don't want to get to know God better. In fact, God may be, maybe you should just get to know me better. Yeah. Kind of like me yelling at God, right? It's okay. He's got big shoulders. He'll bring you around. <laughs> and Johnny goes on, and so we ask Why? To question is just part of what it means to be human and what it means to be made in the image of God. 
Like God, we've got this strong sense of justice that forces us to press for meaning and look for answers. You don't stop the bleeding with quick answers, quick ideas, listing a bunch of scriptures. You don't reach, they don't reach the problem where it hurts, in the gut and in the heart. That's because the problem of suffering is not dry and abstract. The problem is not about something, but about someone. It follows that the answer then must not be about something, but someone. The suffering is about someone, me, when I'm going through it. But it's also about someone. And that one is Jesus Christ, who was familiar with suffering. He suffered a wretched death, a painful, torturous death. He was rejected by family, friends, culture, religion. That someone is Jesus. And so, I'm going to pause a second and just talk a moment, because this is both, as you're probably learning already, this is both an expositional sermon, but also a reflective time. I'm just reflecting with you, okay? So I'd like to talk to you a moment about embracing Jesus. Embracing Him. When I went through the midnight of my soul, and I was mad at God, and I was yelling at Him, and where are you? And um, Eventually I learned He was right there. It took me time to learn that. And then to go back and reflect on the Scriptures again, as we are today. So when I went through another season of testing about 10 years ago, uh, it looked like I had a terminal illness. I went through a battery of tests. I had these things called cystic lesions on my liver and pancreas. That's not a good thing, right? I mean, when you hear pancreas and cystic lesions, you're just kind of like, oh, that's not good, right? Okay. But you know, it's interesting that never have I had such intimacy in Christ than during that season. Because the season was about three or four months of batteries of tests. Turned out I was one of these rare people that didn't affect. In fact, the doctor said, I ended up with a genetic doctor eventually at UCLA. I said, so what am I supposed to do? She said, nothing. Just go on and live. She said, you must be a person of faith because you're taking this so well. You've taken it so well. I said, well, I am. And you know, because of that first season of suffering and going back and reflecting on the scriptures, I learned that it wasn't Bible verses that was going to help me. I read the word. I reflect on the word every day, probably like you do every day, right? And we, that's nourishment. We need that. We want that. We just, it, it's good for us, obviously, right? But it wasn't scripture verses. It wasn't theological answers. It was just in, those, in that, that season I could just embrace Christ, that someone. And I don't mean embrace, and it's fine to embrace him, you know, because I would do, do that too as I reflected on that word. But it doesn't mean, again, just theological thought or doctrinal truth or whatever it may be, but actually embracing him. Because as you embrace him, that someone Everything takes on a different perspective. And I will tell you, that was the sweetest season of my life. I didn't worry. I just embraced him. I just enjoyed him. Because when we're faced with eternity, 
I never, I never knew how it would actually go when I was faced starkly with eternity. It was wonderful. Because it, just such clarity about what's really important and what's not important, right? Okay. So, it's important that we learn to embrace Christ. Not just theological answers or truth, but embrace Him. So let me now begin to close with the rest of the story of Sve Flood and her husband David and Aina. Let's just see what happened. I began by telling you the story of David and Sve Flood who went as missionaries to the Belgian Congo. I told you how David Flood became embittered after the death of his wife and returned to Sweden, leaving his baby daughter Aina with some missionary friends, the Ericsons. Less than eight months later, both of the Ericsons were stricken with a mysterious disease, and they died within days of each other. The little baby Aina was given to some American missionaries who brought her to the United States when she was three years old. She grew up in South Dakota. Her adoptive parents told her often of what had happened to her mom and dad so that she would know something of her background and her heritage. Aina attended Bible college, married a minister, and had two children of her own. Her husband eventually became the president of a Christian college in Seattle, Washington, where she found that there were lots of Scandinavian people. (laughs) One day she found a Swedish magazine in her mailbox. She had no idea how it got there, and she couldn't read the words. But for some reason, she flipped through, some reason, she flipped through the pages and suddenly a picture stopped her cold. In a primitive setting was a grave with a white cross, and on that cross were the words, Sve Flood. She immediately contacted a college faculty friend who translated the story. It told us of some missionaries who had come to the village long ago. It told of the birth of the baby girl, the death of that young mother. It told of one little African boy, Sve Flood had led to Christ. It told her how, after the missionaries had all left, the boy grew up, became a teacher, and finally persuaded the chief to let him build a school in the village. The article said that he gradually won all of his students to Christ. The children led their parents, and perhaps most surprising of all, even the chief became a Christian. At the same time the article was written, there were 600 believers in that one village, all because of the sacrifice of David and Sveiflod. For the 25th wedding anniversary, Aina and her husband went to Sweden. She wanted to find her father and her brother, and she did. Her father had remarried and had four more children. He'd become an alcoholic. He had recently had a stroke and had become even more bitter. He had one rule in his home, never mention the name of God, because God took everything from me. After an emotional meeting with her half-brothers and half-sisters, Aina brought up the subject of seeing her father. Her her sibling said, you can talk to him, even though he is very ill now, but you need to know that whenever he hears the name of God, he flies into a rage. But nothing was going to stop Aina. She walked straight into the apartment and said, Papa. David Flood began to cry and told her he never meant to give her away. 
Ana went on to tell him that it was all right because God had worked it for good. The old man replied that God had forgotten all of them, but Ana told him that he had not gone to Africa in vain, nor had her mother died in vain. That little boy they won to Christ grew up to win the whole village. She told them that there were over 600 people serving the Lord because of their service. David Flood came back to the came back to the God he had resented for decades. Weeks later, he died. Now, the story's not over. A few years later, Aina, later, Aina and her husband attended a conference in London where a report was given from Zaire, the country of Zaire in Africa. The speaker was the superintendent of a national church representing thousands of baptized believers. Aina listened, listened to him talking about the power of the gospel in his country and found that she could not stop herself from going up af- afterwards to ask him if he had ever heard of David and his faith flood. He told her that he was the boy. He was a boy who brought the food to her parents before she was born. Her mother had led him to Christ. Thousands of believers from one seed, one convert, and a little boy at that. Is it impossible? Don't you see in the Belgian Congo by a crude grave when a husband and father thought he had lost everything, God was still working. So even in our suffering, we have to understand God is still working and he's preparing a better resurrection. And God is still working today in your life, in my life. God is still working. And I've got news for you. God is going to be working this week. I want to leave you this morning with a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in the mind of a man named Lockridge, S.M. Lockridge. If you give me just, I'm going to go over just about five or ten minutes. But because I would like to end this with the vision of Jesus, embracing this Jesus that Lockridge is going to describe to you. That in the end, this is the Jesus that we get to have, that the Old Covenant didn't, that we know in whom we have believed Jesus. It's called the Irresistible Christ. The Irresistible Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Jesus Christ, the Irresistible, is the King. He's the King of the Jews, He's the King of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. The irresistible Jesus Christ. Do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. No far-reaching telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his shoreless supplies. No barrier can hinder him from pouring out his blessing. Do you know him? The irresistible Jesus Christ. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperatively powerful. He's impartially merciful. Oh, do you know him? Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon to ever cross the horizons of the world. He's God's son. He's the sinner's savior. He's a centerpiece of civilization. He stands in, this, in solitude by himself. He is august and he is unique. 
He is unparalleled, and he is unprecedented. He's the loftiest ideal in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the supreme problem in higher criticism. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's a necessity of spiritual religion. He's the miracle of the ages. He's the superlative of every good you choose to call him. And he's the only one qualified to judge men's motives. Oh, I wonder, do you know him? He's a key of knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. He's a master of the mighty. He's a captain of the conquerors. He's the head of the heroes. He's the leader of the legislators. He's the overcomer of the overcomers. He's the governor of the governors. He's the prince of the princes. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. That's my king. Oh, I wonder if you know him. The irresistible Jesus Christ. Listen, my friends. He supplies the strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleansed the lepers. He forgave the sinners. He discharged debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. Oh, do you know him? Do you know him? Well, his, ho- his office is manifold. His promise is sure. His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. He, re- he reigns in righteousness. His yoke is easy. And his burden is light. And he's the irresistible Jesus Christ. Oh, I wish I could describe him to you. I really do. But listen, he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. The heaven of heavens can't contain him, let alone a man try to explain him. You can't get him out of your mind, and you can't get him off your hands. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. That's my king. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault with him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. The irresistible Christ. Listen. He always has been and he always will be. He had no predecessor and he'll have no successor. There was nobody before him and there'll be nobody after him. You can't impeach him and he's not going to resign. Praise God. That's my king. The irresistible Jesus Christ. So now I think we're in a good place to pray for those who are suffering. Right? Because we're embracing him right now. He's embracing us. Our faith is high. Now, I would like this to take a couple more minutes. And I want you to think about someone you know who's suffering. Or maybe just our suffering brothers and sisters in another country. Just put that thought in your mind, whoever that might be, or several people. Okay, got that? Got someone? Now let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, I'm thinking about Christy, my friend, 
in eastern Washington. I'm thinking about my friend Johnny Erickson Tata who struggles every day with pain. I'm thinking about them, Lord. And I ask that in Jesus' name that the irresistible Jesus Christ will touch their bodies, strengthen and courage, and deliver them from pain, deliver them from their suffering, give them strength to carry on until deliverance comes. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, check out our website at www.silverlakebaptist.org.